you'll want to get out your sermon outline that says judging and the kingdom. Once again, we've come to one of those verses that you would never pick if you just pick verses at random and that when you just go through them, uh, you can't avoid. So I tried to think up ways to skip this one and uh, just couldn't get there. So if you would turn, we're starting Matthew chapter 7 today in the Sermon on the Mount, getting into the last third uh, now of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we pick up the first six verses of Matthew chapter 7. I'm sure you'll have no difficulty understanding any of this. But it is the words of our Lord and it is God's word to us. So let's listen carefully. Matthew 7 verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you as always for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us again to this great gospel to learn more about your son Jesus. We ask you this morning to enlighten our eyes that we may see the truth and that you would cause that truth to penetrate our hearts, that we would see ourselves as we are, that we would not fool ourselves into thinking that we're more righteous than we are, and that we might see those areas where our lives displease you. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus, and for this, of course, we need grace. Give us the grace and the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Like most of us, John Burke assumed he was not a judgmental person. John's a pastor of a church in Austin, Texas. But uh, just in case he was wrong, he tried an experiment. And for a whole week, he kept track of all of his judgments of other people. So here's what he discovered. Judging others is fun. Judging others makes you feel good. I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room, judge my daughter for being moody, which especially bothers me when I'm being moody, but I have a good reason. Even my dog gets the hammer of condemnation for his bad breath. Amen. Some of you may be thinking, wait, are you saying correcting my kids for a messing room is judging? No, but there's correction that values with mercy, and there's correction that devalues with judgment. I watch the news and condemn those idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people I judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. And then I get in my car. 
and I drive and find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test, and I throw in a little condemnation on our DMV for good measure. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for, all the while being tortured with Muzak. Who picks that music anyway? I stand in the shortest, shortest line, which I judge is way too long, because, look, people, it says 10 items or less. I count more than that in three of your baskets. What's wrong with you people? And why can't that teenage checker, what is she wearing? Focus on work so we can get out of here. Judging is our favorite pastime, if we're honest, but we're not. We're great at judging the world around us by standards we would highly resent being held to ourselves. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. So we would really like it if we were somehow able to not be so judging. However, that's much harder than it sounds. I was reading an article this week by John Mayer, not the singer, but Dr. John Mayer, professor of psychology at the University of New Hampshire, that he gets interesting email. I loved your song. Anyway, Dr. John Mayer writes a regular column in psychology today called The Personality Analyst. I don't necessarily recommending either of them, but I looked this one up because it was about judging. In one of the columns, he writes about the difficulty of not judging in the practice of psychology. He writes, the goal of understanding personality without judging personality is almost impossible. The limits to neutrality in, in uh, uh, regard to judging personality are crossed almost immediately. He says, in the context of performing psychological-related activities, the question, how does personality work, quickly morphs into how well does personality work. And that shift from how it works to how well it works moves towards making value judgments. He gives an example. I love this. He says, take the example of reporting results from a psychological test that he invented uh, that measures sociability, intelligence, power over others, and contains what he calls a lie scale to see if people told the truth on the test. Now, some feedback from the test automatically has judgment built in because telling someone your score on the lie scale was unusually high certainly sounds judgmental. And it's hard to phrase it with neutrality. You could try, you scored low on the honesty scale, but that sounds just as bad. And he ends the article by saying, I conclude almost any information about a person can convey a judgment or be perceived as if it does. There's a certain irreducible judginess to the communication of information about personality. Judgments are implicit in messages about personality, and even when they're not there, the message can still be perceived as judgmental. So what that means is all of us are judgmental, whether we're aware of it or not. 
and that it's almost impossible to communicate even non-verbally without being judgmental. So what do we do with Jesus' now impossible command in today's passage? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. Well, if you remember, when we started the Gospel of Matthew last December, I told you one of the most important rules in understanding the Scriptures in general, and Matthew in particular, is context is king. You must understand the context in order to understand the passage. And for the Sermon on the Mount, <coughs> excuse me, which we've been looking at for several weeks now, the context is all about the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, the whole purpose of being born again is we're born into the kingdom. What does it mean to be born again? It means you're born into the kingdom of God. That's what he tells Nicodemus. The kingdom of God is a realm, or to put it another way, it's a condition in which Jesus holds sway. His royal power holds sway over you. And what you have at that point is his power over you because being born again, receiving Jesus Christ, is to renounce your mastery over yourself. So becoming a Christian isn't just trying to be better. It's not trying to be more moral. It's renouncing the mastery that you used to have over yourself, renouncing self-centeredness, and obeying Christ. And when you enter into his kingdom, <clears throat> his power enters in. And one of the great glories and wonders and joys of the Christian life, one of the ironies in some sense, is that it's not until you give up power that you get power. It's not the kind of dictatorial power that controls others. It's Jesus' power, his supernatural character, his nobility, his royal bearing. It's the grace of his youth and the strength of his maturity and the wisdom of his old age, all wrapped up into one. And that transforms us into his likeness from one degree to the next. That's the kind of power from Jesus that Jesus exercises in our life. When you hear that phrase, that Jesus' power is the grace of his youth, the strength of his maturity, and the wisdom of his old age, how do you respond? How do you react? Does that description mean anything? Because how you respond says a lot about the state of your soul and the state of your relationship with Christ. Because the Bible tells us in Colossians 1 that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Now the whole idea of the Sermon on the Mount is to contrast this kingdom righteousness, this transformational righteousness with legalism, with mere morality. Some weeks ago before Easter, we looked at uh, Matthew 5.20. 
And Jesus told us, unless your righteousness exceeds that, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that the kind of supernatural character that comes in your life has to so far exceed the legalistic morality of just plain good people that it should make your head spin. And we saw in Matthew 6 Jesus moving through different areas of our lives, showing us what that righteousness should look like. And that Christianity is not about people trying to be good. When Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, he's talking about people who think by their own efforts and their own hard work and their own wisdom, they can be good. But they're not in the kingdom of God because they're their own king. And they think they've made it and they're self-righteous and they're smug. But he says none of that gets to the righteousness of the kingdom. The transformational righteousness that he's talking about. So this week we enter into a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. Having addressed uh, the Christian's character, his influence, his righteousness, his piety, his ambition, Jesus has turned his attention to heart attitudes, particularly how they apply in our relationships. Relationships with family members, with those who are obstinately wicked, with uh, our Heavenly Father, with our neighbors, with fellow disciples, brothers and sisters in Christ, with false prophets, and with Jesus himself. And it seems sort of random, but he's not being haphazard. As he moves from issue to issue, there's a connection, because in each case, he's dealing with heart attitudes. And so we get to this one, one of the best known in the whole Bible, and one of the most misunderstood. Thank you, sir. So this is one of the best-known phrases of Jesus. Judge not, lest ye be judged. It's also one of the most misunderstood. Because this passage is about evaluating other people, particularly with regard to their faults, to what they do wrong. So how do we relate to people who are at fault and how do we relate to people who are at fault and how they treat us? And that's the issue Jesus is speaking to. But the one thing that comes across is how we think about them and how we speak about them and how we treat them reveals a whole lot about us and our own experience of God's grace. If we're quick to condemn, perhaps we don't get grace like we think we do. If we're not ready to be merciful, maybe we don't understand mercy like we think we do. So Christ's teaching on how we ought to speak and how we ought to correct those who are at fault gives us an opportunity to learn about our own hearts and our own attitudes and how we really understand God's grace the way we should. So he gives us directions on how to conduct ourselves in regard to the faults of others. So first thing we read is this caution that he gives us. It's a caution about being a judge, verses 1 and 2. Caution about being a judge. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
So a critical spirit, a judgmental spirit, a condemning spirit is common to the human situation. The media, social relationships, our online relationships, schooling, work situations are all immersed in this kind of uh, critical spirit. And we can joke about it, but experiencing it is really unpleasant. There are a few things more exhausting than getting hit by harsh, unloving criticism. And even sadder, the Church of Jesus Christ is itself full of those who make a habit of criticism and condemnation, as if there are some who thinks their critical spirit is a spiritual gift. But the Lord doesn't agree. Here he sets the record set straight in uh, no uncertain terms. And he tells us how we're to relate to our brothers and sisters in this matter of being judgmental. He misses no words. He says, judge not that you be not judged. And as I said, those words have been subject to much misunderstanding. Those first two words, judge not, have been taken by some to mean that Christians must never exercise any critical judgment whatsoever. Some believe Christians should be total accepting uh, no matter what the circumstance. That Christ-likeness is equated with this pious, all-accepting blindness. What's ironic is the world loves opinionated people. Its cultural darlings are those who are articulate and dogmatic about their positions on politics, art, music, literature, culture, you name it. They have radio shows and blogs, and we listen and we read. However, when it comes to matters of individual morality, the world hates opinionated people. Especially if they represent biblical standards of morality. In those matters, it adores the non-judgmental person. The reasons this text can't be made to say that we are to never judge is both simple and obvious. First, in verse 6 at the very end, following Jesus' teaching here in these verses, he says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. We can't obey that unless we judge who are the dogs and who are the pigs. And just a few verses later, in verse 15, he tells us to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It requires subtle, discriminating judgment on our part. There are lots of other scriptures that exhort us to exercise judgment. One of the most important is John 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So we have an obligation to exercise critical judgment. And I think what Christ means when he says, judge not, is we're to refrain from this critical condemning judgment. There's a universe of difference between being discerning and critical. A discerning spirit is constructive. A critical spirit is destructive. A discerning spirit is constructive. A critical
critical spirit is destructive. And a person who has this destructive critical spirit just sort of revels in criticism for its own sake. One of the most prominent characteristics of a critical fault-finding person is they focus on things of little importance and they treat them as matters of great importance. Within the church, it takes all sorts of bizarre forms, judging the spirituality of a young couple by observing how they discipline their children, or judging others by the Bible version they carry, or whether their theology agrees with the critics point by point by point, so it goes. And this pettiness on secondary issues is condemned by the Apostle Paul in the strongest possible terms. Romans 14. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinion. Some other versions say, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Earlier in Romans 2, Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We set the standard and the tone for our own final judgment by our judgmental conduct. And we prove by our judging of others that we know what's right, but if we don't do what's right, we condemn ourselves. One of the clearest statements comes in James chapter 3, where James says, Not many, many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not my favorite verse. And that's because if you become a teacher, you set yourself up as a religious authority over others, and so you'll be judged according to that authority. Do I claim to have an exceptional knowledge and grasp of Scripture? I'll be judged accordingly. Do I claim to have a wise and discerning spirit? I'll be judged according to that position. If we set ourselves up as authorities and judges over others, we shouldn't be surprised or complain when we're judged by our own standard. Which, of course, is what Jesus tells us right here in verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So we need to face that head on and apply it to our lives with all of its, I think, fearful force. How is this going to affect us eternally? There's lots of debate over this, but it seems from the scriptures there's two end-time judgments. One is the separation of believers and unbelievers, the sheep from the goats of Matthew 25. True believers, of course, are the sheep. <clears throat> and they go to be with God and appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive their proper reward. And there God will judge us as we've judged others. Judgmental believers still get to be with God forever, but they have very little reward. Their critical spirit will have diminished much of the good that they have done. And I think there's very few of us who actually pray or even would dare to pray, God, judge me as I've judged others. And I think the Lord's putting a, a holy fear into us to put away critical spirits, to put away critical hearts. 
He says, God's going to judge us as we judge others. The tone of our life is going to become the tone of our judgment. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. I hope that it's also known to your conscience. There's nothing more ungodly than a critical spirit, and nothing more unchristlike than the self-righteous person that's always looking for something wrong in someone else. But now the Lord extends his argument even further, picking up in verse 3. We're given his caution about being a hypocrite. His caution about being a hypocrite. You've got to see the humor here. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And what Jesus is telling us here is not just about truth, but it's also telling us something about love. And he's telling us that truth without love isn't really truth. So we get this very famous, very comical statement. Verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? And it's comical because what we have here is a blind ophthalmologist. That's the picture. I mean, Jesus is trying to be funny. He's saying, here you are, you're coming in for this surgery with sunglasses on. You're coming in to do eye surgery, and you're saying, boy, I can hardly see straight. And you open your eyes and say, wow, it's daylight out here. Let me put on some sunglasses. I mean, it's scary, it's funny, it's pathetic. And Jesus is giving us a picture that's as ludicrous and sarcastic as possible. He's giving us a picture of something that you can't do. The word translated log denotes a huge piece of wood. He's not thinking of looking for a speck while you got a stick in your eye. He's thinking of like a rafter in your house or a railroad tie sticking out of your eye. And a speck is a minute piece of sawdust. Probably fell off your log. And with this giant log in your eye, I mean, you're, it's not like your vision is impaired. You're blind. The idea of helping someone else with a speck in their eye. I mean, you can't even get close to them. You're like whacking them in the head with the log, you know. And I think most interesting, Jesus is using these dramatic terms in terms of specks and logs. But he's speaking of the faults of the others as specks and our faults as logs. Because he knows we think of it the other way around. You know, other people's faults are big. Ours are minor mistakes. I mean, other people's faults, especially when they're directed at us, are horrible. 
but our faults are just little glitches that we have once in a while, you know, very easily smoothed over. And Jesus is reversing the picture. He says, be careful about that fault-finding spirit. Keep a sense of proportion about your sin and other sins. Small speck in others, big log for yourself. And our tendency is to be harsh with those who have harmed us and done us wrong. And Jesus said, you got it wrong. I want you to be harsh with your own sin and patient with the faults of others. And the tragedy is this log spec situation that Jesus is portraying is common. One of the most prominent cases in the scriptures is King David. <coughs> he was at a moral low point, you might say. Probably wouldn't say that, because that's very much downplaying it. He'd taken Uriah's wife, committed adultery. She got pregnant. He had Uriah murdered. They thought he had it all taken care of until Nathan showed up. I love Nathan. <clears throat> and he tells him, he comes to him, he tells him a story about a rich man. He had flocks of sheep. And he lived next to a poor man, and this man had one little lamb. He says he loved that lamb like a daughter. The rich man, not wanting to take a lamb out of his flocks to feed some guests, takes that man's little lamb and slaughters it for his guests. The interesting part about the story is how does David react? 2 Samuel 12. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who done this deserves to die. He'll restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no pity. And Nathan points his finger at him. Thou art the man. One of the great lines of the Bible. You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Forget someone else's speck. Look at that log in your own eye, David. Over and over again, we see in the scriptures and here with Jesus, condemning, judging others for doing the same thing you do. And here Jesus condemns this pharisaical practice of condemning others while refusing to examine our own lives for sin. We find it so easy to turn a microscope on other, another person's sins we look through the wrong end of a telescope at our own. <coughs> it's easy to spot the speck of phoniness in your eye and miss the log jam of phoniness in my own. I mean, I'm happy to confess your sins for you. It's easy to do. It doesn't take a lot. But we hate our own faults when we see them in someone else. I mean, wrath towards that speck in someone else's life often comes from the guilt that we feel over that same sin in our life. And Jesus is telling us that log-toting speck inspectors are hypocrites. 
They don't actually care about the speck in the other person's eye. They're just trying to build themselves up in their own eyes. And that self-righteousness turns harshly critical. And he says it produces a false compassion. Here, let me help you with that speck, which in turn produces contempt for that person. So what are we to do instead? He not only tells us to stop being a hypocrite, but he tells us to start being a brother and sister in Christ. So we read his caution about being a brother, verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say leave the speck there. So we're to judge ourselves. First take the log out of your own eye, and both the Old and New Testaments call us to do that. But when we do it, then we can see ourselves as we are. We see others as they are. Instead of being critical, we can weep for ourselves and for them. When we remove the log from our own eye, we can see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye, out of our sister's eye. <clears throat> Jesus isn't encouraging some laissez-faire attitude towards uh, fellow believers. He does want us to discern sins and shortcomings but see them through clear, self-judged eyes that are tender and compassionate. Now, if you think about it, the procedure for removing a speck from an eye is delicate and difficult. You know, I've been to dentists and eye doctors. I go to the dentist every week of the year before the eye doctor. I mean, I've had crowns, root canals, whatever. Fine. I don't do eye doctors. You know, first thing to do is shine that light in your eye, and I'm like on the floor. I give up, you know. And then they want to put stuff in it, and I, I'm like the worst possible eye doctor patient on the planet. Nothing's more sensitive than the human eye. You know, as soon as you touch it, we close up. And what's required is this incredible carefulness and gentleness and patience and in some ways sympathy. You know, I'm really hoping for the sympathy part. I mean, my eyes tear up just walking into the office. But in the spiritual realm, it's even more delicate because now we're talking about souls, the most sensitive part of a human. We have to be humble and sympathetic and conscious of our own sins and without condemnation. And we need God's mercy. And we need to be people who speak the truth in love because the love of Christ controls us. And Jesus reminds us, again, to be careful to examine ourselves before we presume to examine others. And he gives us, I think, a threefold pattern to how to do that. First, he says, take the log out of your own eye. Deal with your own faults before you start correcting others. He says, before we correct, before we finish our assessment, we have to examine others. We have to look at our own motives. We have to ask, why does this bother me? Why am I upset? Why do I need to rebuke this brother? What are my intentions? Am I doing this to feel better about myself, or am I really trying to build this person up? And what about my sin? Am I guilty of the very thing I'm accusing this other person of being guilty of? So the first thing Jesus says, examine yourself, take the log out of our own eyes, and repent. 
Repent of your own sins. And then you can seek to have a broken heart for the sins of others. And then finally, Jesus says, we're to correct with a view to building up, not tearing down. A view to making them stronger, not making us look wiser. And he gives us these instructions as we go about assessing and reproving one another. And so I think the threefold pattern here is repent, weep, correct. Repent, weep, correct. We would do well to ask ourselves, how have I been? Have I reversed it? Where I'm trying to do the correcting first and then the repenting? And maybe I'll get to the weeping. Do you really think it's a coincidence that we got this passage five days after we had the first major discipline case in eight years? I mean, I planned this stuff out months in advance. I picked this passage for this date last summer. Repent, weep, correct. But Jesus isn't done. He has one more caution for us. And if you've completely misunderstood the first five verses, well, then you'll love this one because it's just plain difficult. His last words are a caution about being discerning. Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And I think he's trying to balance the message here. He's warned us against a critical spirit that's quick to judge. And now he says, even though I've called you not to be harshly critical, I am calling you to be discerning. And you must not be harshly critical, but neither must you fail to distinguish between good and evil, between that which is against my gospel and that which is for my gospel. So he calls us not to be critical, but to be discerning. So I want to go through the metaphors that he uses here. He's talking about dogs and pigs and pearls and what is holy. You need to understand how he uses those words in order to understand what he's saying. Now, as a dog lover, you could find these words a little harsh. You know, if it was cats, I'd fully understand. But when he speaks of dogs, he's not talking about our beloved pets. He's actually talking about half-wild, savage uh, dogs which prowl the streets of Jerusalem scavenging through the garbage and the rubbish trying to find food. And they're not domestic pets. They're very dangerous creatures. And of course, in Jesus' day, the word dog is a standard slur against Gentiles. Many Jews would have referred to Gentiles as dogs. They were pagan, non-Jewish, unbelieving people. And so the Jewish folk of Jesus' day referred to Gentiles as dogs. Now, Jesus isn't throwing out a slur or curse word here. He's not slandering anybody. He's using this word dog in a spiritual sense. Just as those scavenging wild dogs in the streets might turn and attack you if you interfere with their scavenging, he's speaking of people who violently and consistently oppose the gospel and even threaten its messengers. And he says, do not give what is holy to the dog. Now, as far as the pigs go, you know they're unclean animals, not simply in their sanitary habits, but they're unclean animals in the uh, sense of the Old Testament uh, holiness code. 
of Leviticus. The people of God are forbidden to eat the meat of pigs. It's one reason why we have ham at Easter. Because that's been opened up to us. So when Jesus speaks of pigs, he's talking about an animal that just would have been contemptible in the eyes of his hearers. And if you were to cast pearls before pigs, they would mistake them for peas or nuts or something and try to eat them and realize you can't eat them and spit them out on the ground and trample on them. Now, any good Jewish merchant would have known that a pearl is of tremendous value. And they're still of tremendous value today, but especially then. And they would have been horrified at the thought of giving pearls to an animal that would trample them. So Jesus is using dogs and pigs to speak of people who are seemingly incapable of appreciating the gospel. They've heard the gospel and they've rejected it and mocked it and attacked it. They're people who trample on the gospel. They take no thought of the gospel. They have no appreciation for the gospel. They sense none of its value. And he says, don't throw pearls before pigs. What then does he mean by the phrase, what is holy? What does he mean by pearls? I think he's referring primarily to the gospel, the good news of God's grace. And uh, he's speaking to the disciples about preaching the gospel to those who obstinately oppose it, who undervalue it, who are apathetic towards it. And he warns them not to give them what's holy. He wants us to be discerning. So all this is good to know, but what do we do with it? I'm glad you asked. Because the gospel needs to make an impact in how we use words and how those words affect, for better or worse, those around us. So let's look at the gospel and criticism. Because the gospel should transform the way we give and receive criticism, especially as it relates to our relationships and even our online activity. Social networks and blogs have made it very easy to criticize without accountability and outside of community. It's much easier to make a snarky comment on Facebook when you don't have to look that person in the face. So, and I've been guilty of that. And many of you have been guilty of that. But the gospel should transform how we give and receive criticism in four ways by reminding us of four truths. First, it tells us we're created in the image of God. We have value because we're his handiwork. Psalm 139, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. What we do has value because we imitate his creativity and creation. None of us is left without a touch of this creativity. Second, the gospel tells us we're sinful. Charles Spurgeon once said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you're worse than he thinks. And often criticism stings because there may be a teaspoon of truth within the cup of criticism. And there may be a cup of truth within the teaspoon of criticism. We know we're sinful. And we almost always want to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but it's hard to hear the perspective of someone else who may not give us the benefit of the doubt. Third, the gospel tells us, despite being sinful, we're children of God. We're adopted by God. We've been declared righteous, joined his family, are being transformed in the image of Christ. We are much more than the total of our sins. 
And last, the gospel tells us that we're going to be vindicated on the last day. The great American evangelist George Whitfield said, I am content to wait till the judgment day for the clearing up of my reputation. We should learn to be content with the righteousness of Christ waiting for that final vindication. There's a great story about a church many years ago in the South. A young minister arrived there, was called, and he was sort of appalled by what he found there. There's just all kinds of sin. So the first thing he wanted to do was begin public rebukes for the sins of various members of the congregation. And as you can imagine, once he started this, the congregation blew apart. And an older, wiser Presbyterian minister pulled him aside and said, young man, in the old Southern Presbyterian Church, we felt that it was our privilege to first weep with a man before we disciplined him. I think that's good advice. Jesus gives us a pattern here. Repent, weep, correct. Take that to heart. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. <clears throat> My prayer this morning is borrowed from Scotty Smith, recently retired PCA pastor. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when I rubbed my irritated eyes this morning, I soon realized it wasn't morning eye, but a rough board stuck there. I didn't realize it till now, but I spent too much of this week as a prosecuting attorney, judge, jury, warden, and executioner. Bad drivers, slow clerks, bombastic talk show hosts, political juggernauts, even red lights. Lots of easy targets for my bad attitude. Just because I don't get large and loud doesn't mean I can't be angry and critical. And homicide committed in my heart is still homicide. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. You who are so forbearing, kind, and gracious. Have mercy on me, the self-righteous sinner. My self-righteousness usually shows up not in trying to merit your love, but in withholding your love from others. Getting irritated, becoming rigid, being passively aggressive. So, Lord Jesus, as cardiologist and ophthalmologist, bring your grace and truth to bear in my heart and my eyes. I want to love as you love and see as you see. I don't want people to feel pressure to change who they are around me, nor do I want them to feel my indifference. Teach me and lead me in the third way, the way of the gospel. Since you call us to help one another with our specks of sawdust, Help me be a first responder to the life-giving rebukes my friends offer me, a humble recipient of the grace of those who long for my freedom. Grant me a correctable heart, quick repentance, and the grace of the gospel. So very amen, I pray, in Jesus' gracious and forbearing name.